while you're thinking of your questions, I was asked if I might just say a few things about a book I'm working on called Bloodlines. Um, I wrote it, the first draft of it, last April, and now this year I'd, I'd like to finish it. Um, subtitle, Race, Cross, and the Christian. And uh, I don't think that I am an ideal or even a very exemplary urban multi-ethnic pastor. So I don't write the book from the vantage point of having arrived. I write it on, on a quest of 64 years of trying to understand and, and trying to make right some things in my life and, and my church and, and my city. Um, the thesis of the book is that the problems concerning race, both in the processes of moving towards harmony and the issues that keep us from harmony or reconciliation, are only solvable through the gospel. Um, in fact, I was just reviewing the manuscript on the plane coming down here. One of the, book, one of the parts of the book that was most helpful for me to write was to think of all the sins that hinder both white and black that's the main focus of the book, understanding that those aren't the only two ethnicities in America, of course. But that's the focus because of my own history and the history of our nation. Um, the sins of both white and black that hinder even working on the issue are amazingly addressed by the gospel. Let me list the ones that I address. Uh, I'll start with Satan. Satan's not a sin. He's a person. But he hates reconciliation. He hates harmony. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He is against us and would love to draw all kinds of unnecessary lines. Guilt. Huge barrier for white people to even think about this issue. Pride. Both ways. Hopelessness. If you undertake, and you know this, to go to work in a multi-ethnic situation on the issue, you're going to quit. It's just going to get too hard. Because you never say it right. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You go to the table hoping something good can happen at the table and you try to say what you've been thinking and somebody says, that's not the way to say it. I'm, I'm just trying to... How do, you, how do you get beyond that? How do you keep coming back to the table? Hopelessness. The gospel has something amazing to say about that. Um, feelings of inferiority and self-doubt. The gospel has something amazing to say about that. Greed. 
greed. Greed about property. Greed about stuff. It's a great barrier to even moving into the discussion. Hate. Fear. Apathy. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So I've got a whole chapter on addressing how the gospel attacks the sins that keep us from even working together on the issue like those. Um, I try to deal with the issue of whether the concept of race should even be used. I go to a good friend who is pastor of First Baptist Cayman Islands, and you may know him, Fabiti Anyabwile, and he says, don't even use the word. Drop it out of your vocabulary. It's not a category in the Bible. That's true. Race is not a category in the Bible. Ethnicity is big time. Every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Not race. Concept of race isn't in the Bible. So he says, get rid of it. So we have long discussions about whether that's workable. <laughs> whether you can talk. Can you talk and not use it? So I, I, there's a whole chapter on that. Whether it's a, it's a concept that's serviceable today. Um, the global credibility of the evangelical church is at stake on whether we tackle the issue. Globally, I mean, of course, white, white, a, a dominant culture, church or people don't have to deal with the issue. They just they don't have to think about it. And so that's why it's not thought about by most of us. If you have a church and you're surrounded by people like yourself, and that could be true of any ethnicity, I suppose, you just you just go about your business. Why are you bringing the issue up? We don't even have to think about it. Everywhere we go, there's people like us. That's globally very naive. And increasingly in America, it's naive. <laughs> By 2042, white will be a minority in America. Black won't be the majority. Hispanics are already more than blacks. But my, oh my. The diversity on the way in this country, not that it doesn't exist already. So for the, for the credibility of the gospel, for the credibility of the church, evangelicals have to think about it, write about it, talk about it, interact about it, and make progress in it, whatever it is or going to be. Um, one or two other comments on this thing I'm working on. Um, I try to tackle the issue of the tension between the conservatives who talk about personal responsibility in minority communities, get your problem fixed, get your act together, and those who focus on systemic racism and the structural issues. And they, they go at each other like this. And we all tend to gravitate one way or the other. The issues are systemic. And deeply rooted and ancient and controlling. And the others is, forget that, just 
We've got to take responsibility. Fix it. Nobody's going to fix it for you. And I, I try to own up to the truth in both of those and argue that neither has the answer. Only the gospel has the answer. You, you can't find the answer in political systemic manipulation. And you can't find the answer in just buck up morally. Be a better dad or be a better mom or have a better uh, family. It just it won't work. You can't, there's no power in it. So both of them have truths. We need to see the truth in both and then recognize the answer isn't in either of these. It's in the cross. It's in Christ. It's in the Holy Spirit. It's in the blood of Jesus. Um, I think that's enough. So I'm going to stop there. That's, that's what I'm working on with regard to this book. I call it Bloodlines because of a double meaning. Blood lines. We usually think of I'm part of a bloodline. So that's part of who I am. So that's one meaning. And the lines of blood that flow from the blood of Jesus and the new lines, the new ways, the new configurations that are created by the blood of Christ. I don't know whether I'll stick with that title or not. I, I just like it. <laughs> it's memorable. It's short. It's catchy. It's it raises a question. What does he mean? But the subtitle tells it race, cross and the Christian. So I. Um, I sent it, I've sent it to a bunch of people, maybe a dozen or so, and I'm slowly getting feedback. And, and the feedback has been partly encouraging, partly discouraging. And I expect to be discouraged the rest of my life on this issue. And I hope I believe in the gospel enough that I'll never walk away from it. Um, the discouraging part is everybody has a new author that I should be reading that I haven't read. <laughs> and I, I don't know how far to go, you know. How many how many people can you read? I wrote it, I sent it to Tim Keller at Redeemer Prez in New York, and he read it and, and said nice things about it. And then he made a list of about six or seven major authors uh, that I hadn't read. In fact, I've never even heard of that I ought to be interacting with. I thought, oh, brother, that's another year. <laughs> so... We'll see. So you don't have to ask questions about that or about what I said in the first hour. You can ask about absolutely anything you want. We have another 35 minutes. And please feel free to ask me anything. And if I don't know the answer, I'll just say I don't know. So there's a microphone and guys roving around. So stand up and they'll bring you a microphone. Where are the microphone guys? Okay, no microphone. Go ahead. Let me rephrase the question for the video. The question is brought up from the first hour that I'm interacting with this woman whose respect, I have very high respect for her, uh, that the suggestion is being made. How am I going to go back to her uh, if I believe the chief end of man is to glorify God and she doesn't see that? I, I miscommunicated because she would agree with that. She just thinks I'm minimizing I'm minimizing something I need to put more emphasis on, namely that God makes much of us. Whether she would be troubled by my stressing God makes much of us for his glory 
In fact, I, I, I tried that out on her as we were sitting in her living room a couple of weeks ago, and I couldn't quite tell how it was landing. I think she felt I was being defensive. In other words, and I probably was. <laughs> I mean, she was telling me I wasn't getting it right, and I was saying, well, yeah, but. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and so whether she's had time to think about it, and I've had time to think about it, and we could sit down and come up with a way to say it that we could both be happy with, I suspect we could. I've known her for 40 years, and uh, we're the same age, and, and so I, I, I'm not critical of this woman. So I'm, I'm sorry I misled giving the impression that she didn't think that the chief end of man is to glorify God. She just thinks my way of ministering has been unhelpful to some people because of the high emphasis I put on the majesty and the glory of God. And, and she's helping me realize that there are broken people who are not emotionally prepared to be there the way I, I take them there. And I just received that. In fact, uh, I want to do better with those people, but I'll, you pastors know this as well as I do. You will never be able to be as tender as some people need you to be tender and as tough as some people need you to be tough. It, you'll always miss some people. You try your best to be as tender as the tender ones need and as tough as the tough ones need. And when you're tough, the tender ones feel beat up. And when you're tender, the tough ones feel like he's let me off the hook. And, and so I consider that one of the glories of being in the same place for 30 years. Because I get to be tough one week and tender the next. And I get to be, I get to correct myself next week when I didn't get it right this week. And I don't know how pastors do it when they just jump around all the time. But I just hang there. And, and when, when I lay myself down in my grave, I hope that they will assess me for the whole rather than any one sermon. <laughs> Another question. Go ahead, back there. Yeah, with the, with the beard and then you. Would you please comment on the emerging church? Yes, I'd be happy to. <laughs> um, I think the emerging church is a fading reality. I think it has seen its best days. Its leadership is in shambles. And I could give you horrible specifics from personal lives that I know about that aren't public yet. Um, and that's not surprising, given how low their view of truth and doctrine is. So for those of you who don't know, the emerging church is a very loose designation for a constellation of people, churches, and movements that are resistant to and rebelling against the excesses of megachurches and how artificial and plastic and non-relational they feel and they want to have relationships be everything and therefore they minimize doctrine because doctrine divides and relationships pull together. And there's all kinds of experimental ways of doing church and experimental ways of doing uh, spirituality. And uh, the most recent book by Claire, uh, Brian McLaren, who is their 
biggest guru, I would say, I have not read, but everybody I trust who's read it say it's a catastrophe. Uh, Scott McKnight, who's been one of the most cautious defenders of the emergent church, threw the towel in on this latest book by Brian McLaren and said, it's over. He's not orthodox. He's just gone so far that it's barely possible to call him a Christian anymore. So that, and his book is selling like hotcakes at Amazon right now. It just came out a few weeks ago. So he re, if he represents where the emergent church is going, and I think he does, it's going into heresy. It's going away from the gospel, away from the Bible. That's what happens when you begin to prioritize relationships over truth. If truth is prioritized, you get relationships thrown in. If relationships are prioritized and truth doesn't get thrown in, it gets lost. And then the relationships are ruined, which is what I mean by saying that the leadership is in shambles. <coughs> Immorality is rampant. So I think you will not even hear the term emergent church in 10 years. I think it will be over and gone. I hope you didn't get swept up into it. It wasn't a phenomenon in the black community, I don't think. Uh, I, I think you guys are just stable enough that you didn't. <laughs> it's just, it, it, is a, it is a middle class, upper middle class, white departure from orthodoxy. Oh, I'm sorry. He was going to go and then over there to you. Okay. What do I think is most lacking in men coming out of seminary, and what do I think is, is most uh, needed in men coming out of seminary? I think it would be really presumptuous of me to make a broad sweeping comment about what's lacking because I don't know most of them. <laughs> I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds coming out of dozens of seminaries, and for me to, I don't know. I don't know. So it's easier to ask the sec answer the second half of the question. What am I looking for? Um, I don't think seminaries can do everything. And I get very tired of hearing young men or pastors who are seasoned blame the seminaries for their inadequacies. I don't think seminaries are designed to make Complete pastors. Pastoring makes complete pastors. Life makes complete pastors. Families make complete pastors. Seminaries are a little slice of influence in life. And they're good for languages. They're good for theology. And they're good for historical theology. They're good for apologetics. And they're good for a few techniques here and there. And that's pretty small. I mean, just think of what the challenges are in ministry. And if you go into ministry and say, oh, the seminary didn't prepare me for this, I'm going to say to you, why do you think it should? So here's, here's my situation. I went to Fuller Seminary 35 years ago. I doubt, I, I doubt that I would go there today. Um, but this is being videoed, and hello, Richard Mao. Uh, um, I loved it. I loved it. 
And I love it to this day. And I skipped every practical course I could and took exegesis instead. And I would do it the same today. Why? When I took my first pastorate, I had never baptized anybody. I had never buried anybody. I had never dedicated a baby. I had preached 15 sermons at age 34. I had done two weddings. I had never sat beside a hospital bed while anybody died. I was totally green. And I went to school for five years. The school of life. I did a funeral every three weeks for 18 months. And the old people fell in love with me. It was the best gift I ever got because they all showed up at the funerals. The young people never came to the funerals. All the old people came to the funerals. They heard me preach over and over again, began to like this young fellow who helped them die well, helped the families. And I didn't know how to do a funeral. I just opened my Bible and read about death and resurrection and gospel. I thought, whoa, I've got good news. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't need a, clor, a course on funerals. I mean, what a useless course. The, 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 month, the, the, month before, the month before I took the church, I went to David Livingston on vacation at a motel. And I said, I'm going to be a pastor in a month. Show me how to baptize people. He took me to the swimming pool and he said, take your left hand, put it on the right hand. Leave the right hand free to hold their nose. Grab them by this arm right here. Put your hand behind their back and push them under and pull them up. That, that didn't take a course. And it, and it was free. And, and if he hadn't told me that, I would have figured it out. And on and on and on. And so, baby dedications, I wrote the words. For the baby dedications, people taking our little baby words and say, where'd you get that? I said, I made it up. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out, what are we doing here? What, 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 is this in the Bible? Well, once or twice, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> so here's the point. I want, I want guys to come out of seminary loving their Bible, knowing as much of it as they can, I want them to be broken and humble. I want them to be prayer filled. I want them to be full of the Holy Spirit. I want them to love people and care about the lost. I want them to have a vision for the world and a few skills and a willingness to make a lot of mistakes and learn heaps in their first years. So that's it. It's just the Bible. The Bible is the main thing. The Bible is the main thing. Get your feet on the ground in the Bible in, in seminary. Now, over here. Yeah. The, que- the, the observation is that there's a YouTube thing of me. I assume this is what you're referring to. Speaking right to Barack Obama. I mean, I'm looking right into the camera. I did it intentionally, and I'm talking to him. Mr. President. This is right after he was elected. And I'm, I'm calling him to repent for his view about abortion. And I'm saying, I, I wish, I wish... That you got right and, and, and said some positive things. And you can go to YouTube and look it up tonight. You can watch it. Just type in Piper Abortion Obama or something like that and you'll, you'll find it. The question was, um, what do I think the role is of the Christian or the church in addressing politics? 
Um, that's huge. So let me just make a few random comments. I do think the role of the Christian and the role of the church are not the same. The role of the church as an institution, I think, has to be more careful than the role of any of you individuals. You're going to vote. You're going to think. You're going to talk. You're going to express your opinions at work. You're going to be, you know, tossing and interacting. The church has to be a little more careful. It's an institution. It speaks for a lot of people. You can't just go blathering and say the church this and the church that. Well, who, why do you know? You know. So keep separate in your mind the roles of institution in addressing and the roles of people in addressing. I think the Bible is pretty clear that the people should be salt and light scattered in all the institutions and all the layers of society to do as much influence and good as we can. So just scattering that church out there, be involved in as many things as you can be and speak for Jesus everywhere and stand for righteousness and justice and love everywhere. Now, as a pastor in the pulpit, I don't want to play any partisan politics, even on issues I'm totally committed to. Now, what I mean is I'm going to preach on abortion. I'm going to preach on racial justice. We have, you know. It's so interesting providentially in our country that Sanctity of Life Sunday and Martin Luther King weekend always come back to back. We make hay out of that at our church. We make the Republicans mad and the Democrats mad by putting those back to back. Because Democrats don't give a hoot about pro-life and Republicans don't give a hoot about racial justice. And so we put them back to back and I preach on the racial things Martin Luther King weekend and pro-life things the next weekend. And I say to the church, we're not Democrats. We're not Republicans. We're Christians. We, 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 have, we have King Jesus, not Obama, not Bush. King Jesus is our champion. So I really want my pulpit to feel prophetic. I want it to get in the face of Republicans. I want to get in the face of Democrats. I don't care who's in the White House. I want to speak for Jesus. And I think that will be undermined even if I take right political partisan stands in my pulpit. In other words, if I start saying vote this afternoon for this particular law in Minneapolis. Vote for this particular candidate because the world is going to hear me and no matter how I qualify it, they're going to say, he's right wing. Because I'm probably going to vote that way. He's right wing or he's left wing. Doesn't matter. And therefore, my prophetic voice into the right and the left is going to be blunted. So, one of the criteria I use, and I'm speaking to pastors, which is why I emphasize this. One of the criteria I use is what strategies of involvement will preserve my freedom to be in people's face? All of them. I have really wondered, what would I do? I've never gotten a call like this. I don't expect to. What would I do if I got a phone call from a president who said, I'd just like a, a, a personal spiritual counselor. Would you be willing to meet with me every month or so quiet? Nobody knows, just you and me. I've wondered what would I do. I don't think I would do it. But I don't know for sure. I mean, there are biblical examples of prophets who were counselors to kings. But I'm, I'm almost sure what would happen if I did that, or if Bill Hybels did it, or Rick Warren did it, or... Who else has done it? Billy Graham? 
we're going to get co-opted. We're going to get used. I'm going to get used by the Republicans or by the Democrats. It's going to come out. And then people say, Piper's schmoozing with the president. (laughs) And as soon as you're schmoozing with a politician, you're not a prophet anymore. You might not be schmoozing. But the people are going to say you're schmoozing. I mean, why else would you go to Washington every week? That's pretty cool, man. Ego trip and all that. So, I, frankly, I, I, I'd, I'd say, Mr. Obama, this is quite an honor. And I, I think I have lots to say to you. <laughs> but, sir, if, if I were to hang out with you, I think it would undermine my credibility with my prophetic office to be able to criticize you as I ought or to criticize your critics as I ought. So, sir, as much as I'm honored by your call, I don't think I should do this. Now, that's utterly egocentric of me to think I would get a call like that. So, <laughs> go ahead. Got three, three hands right there. Let's take them one at a time. You, you, then you. Go ahead. You first. Are the prosperity preachers deceptive or are some of them, some of them deceived and preaching what they really believe? There is no doubt in my mind there are people in both those categories. And there are all kinds of prosperity preachers, some of them not all that bad. In other words, the prosperity gospel is a broad phrase for a continuum of kind of emphasizing Immediate worldly benefits as a result of following Jesus. Now, the reason I say it's a continuum is because you may have an absolute charlatan over here who's in it for the money and he's a crook. That's the first kind. And here you may have somebody who genuinely believes he's preaching the truth because he sees in the Bible that we're children of God and children ought to dress like it, drive like it, live like it, fly like it. (laughs) And then you got the guy over here who's right on the edge of truth because, you know, it's true life gets better in many ways if you become a Christian. Moral changes that Jesus works in a person's life help him, help him in a lot of practical ways. Help him be a better dad, help him work harder, help him to to be a more responsible citizen. It's, It's not an accident that Western countries prosper. They're all influenced by Christianity. So prosperity does come in indirect ways when the gospel moves into a culture. It does. I mean, history proves it. So you might have a guy there, and he's just getting the balance there not quite right. What I just wrote, I just published a week ago the third edition of Let the Nations Be Glad, my book on missions. And the new thing about the book is that there's a chapter on the prosperity gospel. You can get the chapter free and download it at Desiring God tonight in a PDF format. You can print it out. Just go to Desiring God, type in Let the Nation Be Glad, new edition, uh, go to the introduction and print it out, and you'll have 12 pages of my critique of the prosperity gospel. And the critique is basically, what I try to put it in the form 
of pleas to prosperity preachers. I I don't want to condemn them lock, stock, and barrel. I want to rescue them. I, I want them to become more holistic and get the gospel full and right. And I think when you make promises that you can't follow through on because God's not going to follow through on them, then you hurt people. And the saddest thing is that the prosperity preachers take it to the poorest countries of the world. We export the prosperity gospel from rich America to West Africa. And we gather a stadium full of 30,000 dirt poor sustenance farmers and we tell them their pigs won't die if they follow Jesus. Or they'll find some running water. Or their wife won't miscarry. And then they collect their offerings and go home. And who cares what the result is? And those poor people, they come. They want they need help. They want hope. And we have a great message for them. The forgiveness of sins and a Christ who loves them and cares for them. And in fact, he will give them capacities that will enable them to improve their life. But it's different than making those unrealistic promises about immediate material Blessings. So I don't mean to say, brother, that they're all charlatans. There are many that are totally well-meaning, and there's some that are not only well-meaning, but uh, are getting it almost right. So if you want to know my full thinking about it, you can get that chapter just printed out. Now, there was one right here. Yeah, red sweater. Who do you listen to? Who do I listen to? Like my wife, you mean? You mean preachers? Okay. Um, I, well, I'll tell you. Oh, shoot. You got my phone. You just get my phone. Didn't keep it. Sorry. Be too much trouble. You get my phone, my iPhone. And now who did he, who did he download last week? I think I downloaded Matt Chandler. I think I downloaded J.I. Packer. I have, I listened to two messages from Mark Driscoll a couple of weeks ago. I would listen to Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, I like to listen to the interviews that Mark Dever does. Um, I have listened to Alistair Begg. I'm a reformed guy, right? So I'm, I, I listen to these reformed guys. Who else do I listen to? Um, you ought to, I ought to say MacArthur here, I suppose. <laughs> But frankly, I don't listen to John very often because I've listened to so much. I think I know what he's going to say about everything. So um, I used to listen to a lot, a lot of John MacArthur. Uh, and I still do now when he does special conferences and addresses special urgent things. And I think, ooh, this is going to be controversial. I want to hear this. <laughs> um, so that, that, gives you, that gives you a flavor. Anyway, now that back there, there was somebody, I think, yeah. Wow, <laughs> that's a good question. Let me think, I'm going to repeat it for the, for the video. Uh, I had mentioned some negative things earlier about the emergent church. I said the black community didn't get into it, but the observation was the black community, at least some of you, did get into 40 Days of Purpose, uh, mainly from Purpose Driven Life and Purpose Driven Church and Rick Warren. And Rick Warren isn't emergent, emergent but maybe not totally separate. Um, and... Uh, Mark Driscoll just preached there and preached on the cross and Rick was moved. And do I 
What do I think about all that, I suppose? <laughs> I'll put my cards totally on the table here. Um, I have invited Rick Warren to come to the Desiring God National Conference this fall, and he's coming. Now, I will get a lot of criticism for this from my Reformed brothers, because, not because Rick Warren is openly non-Calvinistic or non-Reformed, I don't think he wears his theological distinctives on his sleeve, but would be probably theologically more at home with where I am than where an Arminian is. I believe that. What, what makes Warren a problem, and I'm going to... Oh, when I wrote him, here's what I said. And he'll probably watch this video too. <laughs> uh, I said, I, I'm in, the, the conference is called Think, the Life of the Mind and the Love of God. I want you to come. You are the most well-known pragmatist pastor in the world. I don't think you are a pragmatist at root. Come and tell us why thinking biblically matters to you in your amazingly pragmatic approach to ministry. I want him to lay his cards on the table. I want him to tell us what makes him tick. Because he does come across in much of what he says and does as very results-oriented and pragmatic and not theologically driven. And yet, I met him for the first time last year at Ralph Winter's funeral in Pasadena. And we sat beside each other on the platform for three hours. I like him because he sings. And he sings badly. <laughs> and anybody who's willing to sing when they sing badly, I like them. And we were talking beforehand... And he said to me, I'm reading all the works of Jonathan Edwards this year. I pick a great theologian every year and I read all of his collected works. I'm on volume 17 of the Yale series of Jonathan Edwards works. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Nothing you have ever said would incline me to think. <laughs> So, these guys are going to go interview him tomorrow, I think, so you can quote some of these things. I do think he's deeply theological. He's a brilliant man. Wouldn't have the church he does or the peace plan or uh, all the influence he does. And, of course, the greatest sentence in the purpose-driven life is the first one, isn't it? It's not about you. It's about God, the glory of God. So, I don't think he's emergent. At root, I think he is theological and doctrinal and sound. And what makes him tick actively in doing church, uh, I intend to find out. So I like him, and I'm frustrated by some of his stuff. <laughs> what would I say to a person who goes there? So the question is, 
what would be my counsel to people who are part of a megachurch that is prosperity-driven, emphasizes more the material benefits of Christianity than the cross. Um, that's a species of a question I get asked about anybody who goes to a church where there's defective preaching or defective ministry. And I, I try not to urge people to leave their churches quickly. I'm not eager to push people out of churches. I, I don't want to be a sheep stealer. I don't want to be a rustler. I, I, don't want to, I don't want to hurt churches. I want churches to be reformed and churches to be helped. So my first inclination is to probe with them. Do you think there's any hope that through your prayer and through your involvement in smaller settings that you could bring to bear in this church a good influence for the sake of gospel-centered life that emphasizes the sacrifices of love rather than the prosperities of materialism. And if they said, not a chance, I'd say, well, then you probably should seriously consider looking for a church where you could flourish without any sedition flourish under gospel preaching. I think that's what I'd say. Back in the corner there. What are the boundaries of ecumenical involvement or interaction? I don't think I've thought this through well enough to give a very good answer, but I'll tell you sort of how I function. Um, The principle that I work with is this. To the degree that hanging out with or interacting with or praying with or walking with a person who holds a defective view of the gospel would appear reasonably to endorse that defect to that degree you shouldn't do it. That makes sense. Um, If it looks like you're going to this prayer meeting where there are Jews, Muslims, liberal Protestants, Catholics, evangelicals, would communicate that you think all those people are connecting with God when they pray, you shouldn't go. And frankly, I wouldn't go to one of those. So I don't, I don't go to ecumenical prayer meetings. And by ecumenical, I mean Muslim, Jew, Christian, Because I think those prayer meetings are built on the assumption we're all connecting with God. However, in a few weeks, over on Ford Parkway, outside Planned Parenthood, there will be a eight-hour prayer vigil that I have been part of many times in which every half hour a different pastor speaks for five minutes about a word from the cross and relates it to the sanctity of life outside one of the most active abortion clinics in the cities. And the rest of the 25 minutes in the half hour, we're carrying a big wooden cross and silently praying with no ugly pictures. There are Catholics. There are Protestants of every sort. And they're evangelicals, and I go. Because I don't think in our culture 
most people view your attendance at a pro-life prayer meeting as the endorsement of the theology of everybody who's there. So I feel free that I'm not compromising my stand at that place. Now, that principle doesn't solve all your problems. There are a lot of ambiguities in that principle, and, and you just have to make the call for yourself. But that's, that's generally the way I go about it. If my association with a person will give a strong impression that I endorse the error, I don't want to go there. So I'll, I'll pull back. For the sake of the gospel, I'll try not to. To do it, I think our, our time is up. Somebody going to close this out. Thank you so much. You've been very patient. <laughs>